Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The Ancient Church, presented by the Institute of Catholic Culture, is a four-part series on the history of the Church in the first millennium. Our speaker, Steve Weidenkopf, is a lecturer at Christendom College's Notre Dame Graduate School in Alexandria, Virginia, and he's the author of Epic, A Journey Through Church History. His 20-part epic study is available at his website, www.catholictimeline.com. In part three of this four-part series on the history of the ancient church, Steve introduces us to the age of conversion and councils, where the Church of Christ was embraced by the Emperor Constantine, held its first councils, condemned the most impious heretics, and resounded with the orthodoxy of Pope St. Leo the Great, St. Athanasius, St. Augustine, St. Ambrose, St. Basil the Great, and many others. If you'd like to follow along, the slideshow Steve refers to is available on the audio portion of our website. We hope you enjoy this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. And again, please visit our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org, where you'll find the best in Catholic education available to the public at no charge. I'm just going to quickly read to you a little note I got. It was just a nice, a nice little note, and I thought I would pass it on. My name is uh, Thomas, uh, I think it's Hefferman, and I am a second-year seminarian at the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter's Seminary in Nebraska. Unfortunately, I cannot help financially in your wonderful apostolate, but please be sure of my prayers. I believe Christ's grace will flow in abundance through your work. May God bless you and Our Lady protect you. Is that very nice? Father Joseph, if you would please join us for our prayer. So you all have that copy there. What Father Joseph's going to do is, is going to sing that uh, one time through, uh, and then we'll sing it a second time and a third time together. Okay? Can we all stand, please, for the Easter time? Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and on those in the tombs bestowing life. Good. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and on those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and on those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Glory to his holy third day resurrection. We glorify his resurrection on the third day.
Thank you, Father Joseph. Please welcome back Steve Weinkampf. Thank you. All right. Excellent. All right. I brought, uh, I remembered my audiovisual or my visual uh, entertainment this week, so uh, we should be good to go tonight. I just want to echo just briefly here before I start the presentation what, you know, what Sabatina talked about here just recently in terms of, of you know, helping, him, helping the Institute financially if you can. I would highly encourage you to do that. I mean, it's a great blessing actually to have the Institute in our diocese, something like this in our diocese. I mean, I have an opportunity to travel around, you know, to give presentations on church history, and many dioceses don't have anything remotely like this. You know, where adults can go and they can receive formation in the faith and we can grow in our faith together and learn and we can have people come and talk to us about the scriptures and about church history and, and church fathers and other topics that, that Sabatino puts on here in the Institute. So it's, it's a huge, huge blessing. So again, if, if you do feel called to be able to help him in any way, I highly encourage you to, to do so. And he didn't pay me to say that or ask me to say that. So I say that really from my heart that it's true, that it really is a very, very um, important ministry uh, and a very special ministry in the diocese, so do support it so it continues and, and grows, and so that more and more people can come to know the faith uh, even more richly and deeply. So last week we had our second presentation on church history, and we talked about the time period of persecutions, and this is the period of time when the church was actively um, persecuted by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire embarked on a state-sponsored policy of active persecution against the church for over 200 years. And we saw, though, that at some times there, was, there were waves of active, intense persecution throughout the empire. And there were times when it was localized or, or more regional. Certain you know, provinces or certain towns or cities of the, of the empire uh, where Christians were persecuted. And there were other times when there was kind of relative peace. It was still illegal to be a Christian you know, throughout this time, from the year 64 until the time period we talked to, we'll talk about tonight, to the year 312. It's still illegal to be a Christian in the empire. But again, it wasn't always everyday active 24-7 persecution. Sometimes it was that intense, sometimes it wasn't. But we saw and we looked at the martyrdoms of some very important and famous saints in the history of our church last week. We looked at the martyrdom of St. Ignatius of Antioch. We saw the martyrdom of St. Polycarp as well. And we also looked at not only was the church dealing with some external issues in terms of external persecution, there was also what I called internal persecution or internal strife. And we had some early heresies that arose or some, and also some early schisms that erupted, unfortunately, in the Christian community. So we looked at the heresy of Gnosticism. Remember that dualistic heresy that sees everything that is it's material is bad, everything that is spiritual is good. And there's this tension between the material and the spiritual and how the church had to deal with that uh, early on in her history and continued to have to deal with it. And then we saw, too, we looked at Marcion, for example, a man who wanted to put a false dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right, saying how the Old Testament God is not the same as the New Testament God. And unfortunately, we still hear that wacky heresy sometimes even in our own day and age. And we also looked at, too, how, remember, two, time, or two times ago, we actually looked at some myths that the Roman pagan authors were, were perpetuating or, or propagandizing against the Christian faith and against the Catholic Church to help try to convince people not to join the faith. And so we saw last week the Christian response to that. We had Christian apologists now rising up and writing you know, their own works and their own treatises you know, defending the faith. And we saw specifically the example of St. Justin Martyr. And then we finished our discussion with uh, a look at the great persecution under the Emperor Diocletian and how that, empire, that persecution was, was intense throughout the empire, and in particular in the eastern half of the empire. The west, it wasn't so intense. And remember I said the reason why the persecution in the western part of the empire wasn't so intense was because the emperor of the west at the time was a man by the name of Constantius. 
And I, I told you, remember that name, Constantius, because it'll become important for us, because he is the father of a man who we're going to look at in detail tonight, Constantine. And so we also saw with Diocletian, the emperor at the time who, who uh, began and started that great persecution, that the, he divided the empire into half, right, into an east and a west half. And then he created this political structure known as the Tetrarchy, where he had four rulers basically governing each these, the uh, Roman Empire broken into half. So you had an emperor in the west and a Caesar under that emperor in the west, and then you had an emperor in the east and a Caesar in the east. So the idea was that when the emperor died, the Caesar in either half of the empire would then fleet up and become the emperor, right, to try to stem some of that political instability that happened. And I said that that was his idea, Diocletian's idea, but it didn't really work, right? And we'll see that tonight, how the political instability still exists in the empire despite this, this political process he tried to put into place, or this, this process of secession. So we start off with our time period now, moving from, from persecution to the time period I call conversion and councils. And this is a time period that runs from the year 313 to the year 500 or 499. And we'll look at in this time period, there's a couple of things going on. Really, I could have called this time period conversions, plural, and councils, because there's two main conversions that happened during this period of time, this almost 200-year period of time, that we're going to look at tonight. One, the first conversion, is one we'll look at here in, in a couple of minutes, and that's the conversion of the Roman Empire. The empire will convert to the faith. The empire that persecuted the church will then adopt and embrace the faith and become members of the church. A very fascinating story, and we'll look at that. But there's also another conversion that happens at the end of this time period that's also very, very important for the history of the church and also really for Western civilization as a whole. And that second conversion is the conversion of a Germanic tribe known as the Franks and their king, whose name was Clovis. And so we'll look at that conversion at, at the, towards the end of our time tonight. Now, also this time period is called councils because during this time... During this time period, there's, there's this development and growth of theology. Once the church is actually recognized as being legal, and we'll talk about that, and is tolerated through the empire, there's this flourishing of, of writing and of people coming into the church and questions being at, theological questions and philosophical questions going back and forth. So there's a flourishing of theological activity. And that's really kind of embodied in this notion that in this time period of conversion of councils, there are four major ecumenical councils that occur. And of the, these four major ecumenical councils, not ecumenical councils, there's only been 21 of those in the entire history of the church. So four of them happen in this time period. And then next week we'll look at the time period that I call missionaries and the emperor, and we'll see that there are another four councils that happen in that time period. And so over the next couple hundred years, we'll have eight total ecumenical councils happening of the 21. That's 40% of the ecumenical councils in the history of the church happen over these two time periods. So just a data point to, to illustrate that there are, there's a lot of activity of the Holy Spirit and theological activity going on during this time period. We're not going to look at all eight of those councils. We just don't have time. We'll look at a few tonight and, and a few uh, next week. Now also, if you were to take this time period and look at this time period, conversion and councils, as well as the next time period, missionaries and the emperor, we'll see that there are eight doctors of the church in, in these two time periods. Now there's only... 33 total doctors of the church. These are men and women who've been given this title, doctor of the church by the Holy Father, meaning that they have, they're saintly men and women, obviously, but they also contributed greatly in terms of spiritual or theological writings to the, to the development of doctrine and understanding of our faith. And so, again, over the whole 2,000-year history of the church, there's only been 33 doctors of the church, men and women. And eight of them live during this, these two next time, this time period tonight and the time period we'll talk about next week. Again, another 40-so percent. So it's a huge amount of just intellectual activity going on in this time. It's a, it's a really fabulous time in the history of the church. 
So I talked about how uh, last week we had the, the conversion or the uh, empires divided into east and west through the efforts of Diocletian. And we see that in the west, the emperor was this man by the name of Constantius. And Constantius dies. And what happens is the army that he was in charge of in, in Britain appoints his son, Constantine, to be the emperor. Now, this was problematic because Constantine was not the Caesar of the West. Remember, according to the way Diocletian had structured things, the Caesar in the West, a man by the name of Maxentius, should have become the emperor. Right? And he did proclaim himself emperor in Rome, and he was in charge of a large army and the Praetorian Guards as well. So he's claiming to be the Western emperor. And now we have an, an army in Britain that has appointed Constantine to be the emperor. So now we have another man in the West claiming to be emperor. So we have two guys in the West each claiming to be the emperor. Obviously, this causes a problem. And they're both in charge of armies. Right? And what do generals do when they're in charge of armies and they want to control things? They go to war. Right? They don't just sit around and you know, uh, roll dice in the camp. Right? They decide they're going to go to war. So Constantine goes up to the army in Britain. He's proclaimed emperor. He decides then to march with his army and engage in battle with Maxentius uh, in Rome. Now, he meets with his generals, and his generals tell him, you know, Constantine, not a smart idea to go to Rome and fight Maxentius right now for a couple different reasons. One, he has a much larger army than we do. Number two, he's, behind, he's in the city of Rome. It's a well-fortified position with very strong walls. It's a defensive position. We do not have enough troops to overtake that, that defensive position. So we need to wait, bide our time, gather more troops. That was the general's advice to Constantine. Constantine decides he's not going to listen to their advice, and so he decides to march with his army anyways. And as he's marching through Gaul, modern-day France, with his army, something miraculous happens. Something extremely miraculous happens. And what happens is he and his army see a vision. They have a vision. And what they see in the sky is a cross. And around the cross, they see this Latin inscription up on, on, your, uh, on the slides here. It says, in hoc signo vinces, or in this sign, conquer. Now, this is extraordinary when you think about it. Here's a Roman army marching through Gaul on the way to battle a, a, a rival claimant to the throne in Rome. And they're, the, they're an instrument, the Roman army is an instrument of the Roman Empire. They're one of the instruments that tortured and persecuted Christians. Now here you have this Roman army having a, a Christian sign appear to them in the sky, telling them that in this sign, the sign of the, of, of the Christian faith, you're going to conquer, you're going to win your battle. And could you imagine that they would have been kind of shocked at this, right? Now Constantine obviously was not a Christian. He might, there are probably some Christians in his legion, um, more than likely. You know, and he knew of the Christian God you know, because of his father Constantius, who was very favorable to the Christians, didn't persecute them as intensely as in other parts of the empire. But he was not a worshiper. He was a worshiper of the sun god, actually, the sun god's soul. So he had this understanding of monotheism to a certain extent. He wasn't you know, overtly polytheistic, but he definitely was not in any way, shape, or form Christian, and really not even inclined to be supportive of the Christian faith at this point. So here we have this, and, and not only do they have this vision, but then Constantine, see the sign, Constantine does something even more radical. Is he decides to take another Christian symbol and have his soldiers paint that on their shields. And the symbol that he has painted on their shields is the Greek monogram for Christ, the Cairo. Right? Or this is, we see it, the P and kind of X. And that's a very, it's a, it's, an, it's a Christian symbol that's been around from the you know, beginnings of the church. It's still in our churches today. Right, we see, you can see that in some stained glass or some um, you know, different paintings and what have you. Still a Christian symbol in use today. So he decides to have the Cairo painted on their shields. Again, this is huge. An instrument that persecuted the Christian faith is now adopting that symbol, marching into battle. So Constantine decides to take his, his army to, 
to Rome. Now, before he gets to Rome, Maxentius decides that he hears and he knows that Constantine's coming to, to fight him. Maxentius decides to do something extremely militarily foolish. He decides to take a part of his army outside of the city walls and engage Constantine in battle outside the walls. Which, if you know anything about military tactics, that was really incredibly dumb for him to do. If, you're behind, if you have a well-fortified position in a large fortress, you need to stay behind it. Let that other person just you know, sally as much as they can and try to attack you and besiege you. Eventually, they'll either die off or they'll, they'll give up or they'll have, to, you know, they'll have to leave for some reason or another. You don't want to leave your fortified position. But he decided to leave his fortified position because he went one morning to the pagan priests and he asked to give them, he wanted them to give him a sign of this coming conflict in battle. And so the pagan priests did what they normally do when they try to divine the future, is they, they cut open a lamb and looked at the entrails of the lamb, and they decided that what they said to Maxentius was, the enemy of the Romans would be killed this day. And so Maxentius thought, well, of course, the enemy of the Romans is Constantine, not me, so I'm going to go march out with my battle, the gods, and, and battle him, and my, my, the gods have favored me. Now, maybe he didn't realize that people in Rome really didn't like Maxentius, uh, he was actually very much of a tyrant and an overbearing ruler. And, uh, and the people in Rome, the populace, was not, were not happy with his rule, as brief as it was. But he, of course, you know, believed that the, uh, the future was, uh, was prophesied in his favor, not against him. So he decides to march his army outside the city walls and engage Constantine's army in battle. Now, to do that, he had to cross the Tiber. And when he crossed the Tiber, he had built across the Tiber this little pontoon, wooden pontoon bridge, which was called the Milvian Bridge. So his army marches across this wooden pontoon bridge and engages Constantine in battle. This is October of the year 312. Now, Constantine's army is, of course, because they've been given the sign they're going to be victorious, they're they're victorious. They win a huge battle against Maxentius. They rout his overwhelming force, and Maxentius and his army are forced to, to begin to retreat back into Rome. Now, as they retreat back into Rome, his soldiers kind of bunch up, as soldiers are wont to do in a retreat, and in particular, he and his heavy cavalry all kind of bunch up on the wooden pontoon bridge all together. And the weight of the armor and everything else and all the troops on the bridge collapsed the wooden bridge. And so a good majority of, of Maxentius's army, along with Maxentius himself, fell into the Tiber and drowned. So there's, thus ends the brief career of the emperor Maxentius. Constantine then marches into the city of Rome victorious. And he gives credit... For his overwhelming victory, his really miraculous victory, to the intercession, intercession of the Christian God. So he begins to do things favorably to the Christians and to the, the church in particular. What he does is all the property that was taken from the church during the great persecution, he restores to the church. He also then, uh, and one of the things that he does is he gives his wife's palace, uh, hopefully with her permission, to the church. Probably not, but you know, hopefully. We can, we can at least hope that he was a good husband. Although he really wasn't, if you know the real story of Constantine. Um, but he gives his, the palace, he gives his palace of his wife to the Catholic Church. And the palace was known as the Lateran. The Lateran Palace. And so the cathedral of the Pope in Rome is what? St. John Lateran, right? Good, it's not St. Peter's, right? So his cathedral is St. John Lateran. Why? We even have a feast day that we celebrate, right, in the, in the, in the Latin liturgy that's the, the dedication of the Basilica of St. John Lateran. Why? Well, it stems from this. It stems from Constantine giving that property to the, to the Bishop of Rome, which the church has had ever since that time. So he gives the property to the church, including the Lateran Palace. He also then begins to receive instruction in the Christian faith from a Catholic bishop of Spain, a man by the name of Hosius of Cordoba. Now, at this point, he is not a Christian. 
and he is not baptized. He doesn't receive baptism until his deathbed, you know, several years in the future. And even then, he's baptized by an Arian, who's a heretic. So, and we'll talk about the Arian heresy in a moment. So the whole moral of that story is don't put off baptism, because if you do, you, can, you might be baptized by a heretic. <laughs> so you don't want to do that. But he begins to receive instruction in the faith, but he also then also inserts himself into the affairs of the church. And one of the questions the church begins to have to wrestle with now at this point in history is the relationship between the political arm, the secular arm, and the spiritual sphere in the, in the church. What's that relationship? And it begins to develop differently in the different parts of the empire for certain historical reasons. What happens here in the East is that Constantine will adopt what comes to be known in history as by the phrase Caesaropapism. So basically take the word Caesar and Pope, put them together, Caesaropapism. And what this is, is an understanding that the emperor is supreme in temporal as well as spiritual matters. So we see, especially in the eastern part of the empire, the emperor become more and more involved in church affairs. And this won't really develop in the West. A different kind of understanding of the relationship between church and state will develop in the West for different historical reasons. But in the East, we have the emperor really, really involved in church affairs. And one of the reasons why Constantine got really involved in church affairs, including dealing with church discipline, matters of theology, and other things, and other emperors after him will get really involved in theological matters. The reason why Constantine got involved in the church to such an extent was that he saw the church as the primary institution through which he could bring unity and reform to the empire. So in a certain sense, he wanted to use the church to bring unity and reform throughout the empire. Now, it's important to note that not only does Constantine give property back to the church, but he also begins to pass laws that are very favorable towards the faith, and he also begins to even to legislate Christian morality. So there was a custom in Rome that was known as the pater familias custom. And what this custom was, was that a man could, man who was in charge of a Roman household, he was in charge of not only his immediate family, like we would consider a household, but he was also in charge of all, everyone who worked for him, all the slaves or anyone else who might be living on his property. He was the head of the household and really you know, could decide life and death you know, over the people on his property. And so this custom of the pater familias custom is that when a, when a child was born on his property to his household, whether it was his immediate family or, or even to a slave, that child was brought to him. And if he decided he wanted to welcome that child into the family, then he would, he would pick up that child and hold the child in his arms. And that child then became a member of his household. If for whatever reason he didn't want the child, remember he had too many children to take care of, or the child was deformed in some way, or he just was having a bad day, he could not pick up the child, turn around, turn his back, and walk away from the child. If that happened, then the child was taken outside of the household and put on one of the hills outside the city uh, limits to be exposed to end to die. So it was a form of, of Roman infanticide. And this was, this was allowed under Roman law. And so what Constantine does is once he is now emperor in Rome, he decides to outlaw that practice. That custom is completely illegal now in, in Roman society. He also allows the church to be exempt from taxes. Right? Now that the church is, is more public and is not under active persecution, the church has property restored, the state is not going to take you know, money from the church as a result of, of uh, her having her property back. Now another thing that he does is very, very important for the church is that he, along with the eastern emperor, a man by the name of Licinius, they get together in, in a meeting at the city of Milan. And in the city of Milan, in the year 313, they pass an edict. And this edict that they pass was a joint declaration on religion. And what this Edict of Milan in the year 313 does is it legalizes the Christian faith. 
So remember how I said a couple times ago that Nero, in the year 64, made it illegal to be a Christian in the empire. Well, now that law is finally repealed in the year 313. took a couple hundred years, but now it's finally repealed. And this is what Constantine and Licinius in their Edict of Milan said, or what they wrote. We therefore give to Christians and to all others the freedom to follow their own religion. We ourselves have given free and absolute permission to the Christians to practice their religion. Now, what's important to note about this is that the faith is legalized now in the Roman Empire. The faith is tolerated. It's allowed to exist as a legal entity. This does not, the Edict of Milan, does not make the Christian faith the official religion of the, of the Roman Empire. Sometimes you see that either said in A&E or, or History Channel documentaries, or you'll read it in some textbooks even today, and that's completely not true. That's not what the Edict of Milan does. The Edict of Milan legalizes the Christian faith and tolerates it, along with all the other, along with pagan religions. So the pagan religions still exist at this time under Constantine. It's not until the end of the 4th century, in the year 380, when the Emperor Theodosius the Great outlaws paganism, that the Christian faith becomes the official faith of the empire. So at this point, it's not, though. Right? So if you ever hear anybody say Constantine made the Christian faith the official religion of the Roman Empire, it's not true. Not historically true. He legalized it, just tolerated it. Now, Constantine ultimately will become the sole emperor of both East and West. Remember how we, we talked about Diocletian set up this, this uh, uh, tetrarchy and the, divided the empire into East and West? And there were supposed to be four men kind of governing the empire, not just one. Well, Constantine decides that, you know, he really likes being emperor of the West, and so he now wants to be emperor of everything. And what happens is he and the eastern emperor Licinius fight a battle in the year 324, the Battle of Adrianople. Constantine defeats Licinius, and now he is the sole emperor of the empire. So once again, reestablishing what, what had been the case before Diocletian's reform. Now, not only does, is he now sole emperor, he decides a couple years after this battle to move the capital of the empire from Rome to the city of Byzantium, as it was known at the time, which he then renames after himself and calls it Constantinople, right? So he moves the seat of the empire from the, from the west to the east, from Rome to, to Byzantium, which he renames Constantinople, and then he decides to spend a lot of money building up this city. And he brought property and, and materials and money from all over the empire to Constantinople to beautify it and make it a wonderful, great capital city. So much so that St. Jerome later would say that in clothing Constantinople, the rest of the world was left naked. So, so much material and so much money and, and, and art and other things just flew into Constantinople from other parts of the empire that it was really, it became this great, great city. So much so, by the end of the 4th century, it's estimated there were 500,000 people living in Constantinople, which is a, it's a big city even today, but especially then, extremely large city. Now, as we have people gr coming into the church, um, you know, now that the church is, is, and the faith is legalized and tolerated, and it's obviously the imperial court, and with Constantine very much favorable to the faith, we begin to have a lot of converts coming into the church. And, and now people are coming into the church for, let's say, less than pure motivations, right? Some people are coming into the church because they want to, you know, grow up, the, get up the ladder, the social ladder. They have, you know, political designs. And so they decide to, you know, do what's favorable. What's favorable right now is being a Christian. So not everybody, but a lot of people are coming into the faith and coming into the church for less than pure motives. And so what happens is huge questions begin to be debated within the church over the church's doctrine and her theology. And the major question that begins to be wrestled with at this time, with this influx of new converts, is the question of who is Jesus? And what I mean, the question who is Jesus, the question really is how do we understand who Jesus is, right? 
early church knew exactly who Christ was, and we talked about that a couple of times uh, ago when we talked about St. Ignatius of Antioch and other writers. But now we have people questioning, well, what does it mean that Jesus is true God, true man? What does it mean that we say he's the son of God? What does it mean that he's the son of man? So a lot of questions are being asked, and now the church has to try to define this doctrine and try to come up with words in which to express what she has taught and what she believes. And so over the next 350 years, the church will basically be wrestling with the question of how do we express the answer to this question, who is Jesus? And so over the next several ecumenical councils, we'll see the church coming up with, with words with which to express the teaching and the belief that she's had about Jesus from the beginning. Now, one person who tried to answer this question at this time period that we're dealing with tonight was a North African priest who is a very dynamic personality, was a, was a wonderful preacher in order, a man by the name of Arius. And Arius decided that he was going to answer this question of who is Jesus by, by distinguishing Jesus and the Father in this way, by basically saying that Jesus is a creature of the Father. Now, the most perfect creature that God has ever created, but a creature, not, not God himself. This is what he wrote. God has not always been Father. There was a moment when he was alone and was not yet Father. Later he became so. The Son is not from eternity. Now, we, you know, all of us, we hear this and we think, obviously, well, Arius is on the wrong path here. This is not what the church believes. But again, he's trying to answer this question. So he says that Jesus is the highest creature ever created by God. But again, just a creature, not God himself. He also said that the Holy Spirit was a creature of God, the second most perfect creature by God, but just a creature, not God himself. So he's fundamentally atta- he's attacking the fundamental doctrine of the, of the church, the understanding of the Trinity. And so what happens, though, unfortunately, is his, his uh, teaching, Arius' teachings, become widespread. Very and accepted by a multitude of different peoples. And there's really kind of two reasons why Arius' teachings become so accepted. One is that the, the empire was at peace, and people like to engage in this popular debate around theology. And remember how I mentioned, I think, last week, that, that Roman society was very class-oriented, and how one of the attacks that the pagan authors always levied against the church was that uh, you know, the only people who were Christians were ignorant and poor people, and you didn't want to have anything to do with them. Remember that? So what happens here is you have this, 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 you know, society is structured and stratified in many different levels. And you have the nobility and the Roman aristocracy not wanting to associate with ignorant and poor people. And so along comes Arius and his kind of newfangled idea and his new teaching. And these Roman aristocrats begin to say, hey, if we adopt this teaching, that separates us from the poor people. And we, therefore, are the inheritors of this great knowledge from Arius, and we know more than the poor people in essence, right? And so there was a lot of debate that was going on, and people enjoyed this, this type of debate, and the empire is relatively at peace at this time, so people had the luxury of engaging in this kind of theological debate. And many of these people began to try to use scripture, or were using scripture, to defend Arius's teachings, and also to defend the orthodox position. So you had people going back and forth using scripture and interpreting it on their own. So much so that St. Jerome later, when, when reflecting on this period of time, what was going on, would write this. He said, Builders, carpenters, workers in metal and wood, Websters and fullers, makers of anything, cannot become an expert without a teacher. Physicians are trained by physicians. The art of the scripture is the only art which is claimed by all. So he's, he's, you know, he's, he's upset that you know, anybody can just say, oh, well, this is what I think scripture means, and you know, have your own personal interpretation of scripture. So if we think that the church having to deal with private and personal interpretation of Scripture is a thing that started in the 16th century. Not true. It started all the way back here in the 4th century. The church has dealt with that for a long, long period of time. 
So Arius' teachings begin to, be, to accept, be, become accepted and widespread because we have the nobility or members of the aristocracy accepting it in a way in which to distinguish themselves from the lower classes. Another reason why Arianism spreads so much is because the army adopts Arian teachings pretty much as a whole. And the reason why that's important is the army was the backbone of Roman civilization. It was the army who made and unmade emperors. It was the army who, was the, you know, who were the police force. They were the ones who protected society. They were, they were looked upon very much so as, as a central, the central piece, really, of the whole Roman Empire. And so if the army decides to go eerie, and that's going to spread rapidly throughout the empire, and that's exactly what happened. Acceptance was so widespread, especially in the eastern part of the empire, that even we have accounts of even bishops accepting Arius' teachings. And so there's a huge crisis and controversy going on in the church at this time. Now Constantine hears about this, what's going on, and this, this instability, and this infighting, and this debating, and again, he wants the church to be an instrument of peace and unity in the empire. And so this internal conflict is obviously distressing to him, so he decides that that needs to end, and unity needs to be restored once again, so he decides to do something quite unique in the history of the church. He decides to gather all of, or to invite all of the bishops of the world to meet in a city to air this whole, out, this whole discussion out once and for all and to finalize a teaching that all can agree on. And this is what is known in history as the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. So he calls forth the Council of Nicaea, invites all the bishops of the world to meet. It's the first time in church history that's happened that all the bishops of the world are invited to meet in one particular place to discuss matters of doctrine or discipline. Now, for an ecumenical council in the history of the church to be considered authentic, a couple of things have to happen. But one of the things that have to happen is the Pope either has to call the council himself or he has to approve the calling of the council. And then the council teachings have to then be promulgated. Well, in this case, obviously, it's not the Pope who calls the council. It's the Emperor Constantine. Now, he calls the council, but the Pope did send representatives. He sent a legate, somebody to represent him at the council, and approved the calling of the council. So this is an official uh, ecumenical council in the history of the church. Now, we do know that there were 318 bishops who attended this council. Not every bishop attended, but most did. A good majority did. Constantine himself was president of the council, especially in the beginning, and for most of the deliberations, and also at the end. Now, the Council of Nicaea has come into popular um, uh, imagination or popular focus here in the last couple of years because of a particular book that was written several years ago. Some of you might have heard of it. It's called The Da Vinci Code. Anybody read the Da Vinci Code? Dan Brown, go ahead. Raise your hands. Anybody read it? Anybody read it? Father, do we have time for confession later? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just, just kidding. No, the Da Vinci Code is a very interesting book. I mean, Dan Brown, I'm not going to get into all his, his uh, silly theories, but Dan Brown mentions the, the Council of Nicaea in his book, and it, kind of, it actually forms a kind of a central part of his book. And in his book, he makes the argument, you know, that, that one of the arguments he makes is that the church decided in the 4th century, through the actions of Constantine and the Council of Nicaea, to declare that Jesus was God. That before this time, before the 4th century, this is what Dan Brown's saying, before the 4th century, Christians did not believe Jesus was God. Jesus was just a nice guy, did some cool things, but was not God. This is what he advocates in his uh, book. But it's here, the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century, the church then changes her teaching through the actions of Constantine and make him God. This is what he wrote in the Da Vinci Code. Um, now, it's also interesting, the Da Vinci Code, he says, really, he really builds this up and says the really kind of shocking thing about the Council of Nicaea was that the bishops voted on whether or not Jesus should be divine. Ooh, you know, as if that's a horrible thing. I mean, yeah, did bishops vote at the Council of Nicaea? Sure. 
bishops voted at practically every ecumenical council. That's just how they do things. They get together, they talk about you know teachings or discipline, and documents are formulated, and those documents are voted on. I mean, it's not it's not any kind of rare or, or odd thing. But he makes it in this big big deal, and he says they voted. Not only did they vote, but the vote at the Council of Nicaea to make Jesus God was close was extremely close, like 2000 Florida election close, like hanging chads and everything close. <laughs> extremely, extremely close. So this is what Dan Brown says. Now, I'll give you in a moment what the actual historical account was, and we'll see if Dan Brown was accurate in his assessment. So what happens at the Council of Nicaea is Arius comes, and he is allowed to present his teaching, which he does. And then the, the bishops you know, debate about his teaching, and ultimately what they decide to do is they decide that Arius' teachings are not in conformity with the orthodox teaching of the faith. The faith that's been handed down from the apostles, what Arius is preaching, what Arius is teaching is not in, in conformity with that. That's not what the church believes. Jesus is true God, true man. He is not a creature of God. He is God. Right? He's, like, he's also true man, like us in all things but sin. And so they decide at this council to write something that will be an expression of that faith. And what they decide to write, we have known, we come to know in history as the creed, the Nicene Creed, right? Now, technically, the creed that we say every Sunday at Mass and also on solemnities is, is the Nicene-Constantinople Creed, because the Second Ecumenical Council, which occurred in 381, is the First Council of Constantinople. There was the, an additional part of the creed was written at that council, basically from the Holy Spirit to the end of the creed. So the Council of Nicaea wrote kind of the first part of it. But it's really kind of hard to say and very long to say the Nicene-Constantinople Creed every time you want to talk about the creed. So we just say, we just call it the Nicene Creed, right? But just so you know, it was really written over two different councils. So they write this creed. In this creed, they use a word. And the, the word that they use in Latin to describe this relationship between Jesus and, and God the Father is consubstantial, meaning that Jesus was begotten, not made, one in being, or consubstantial with the Father. In Greek, it's homoousios, one in being. That was the word that they chose to use to describe this relationship between Jesus and God the Father. And they write this creed, and then the creed now becomes the statement of orthodox belief, the Nicene faith, orthodox faith. Now, and we, of course, the bishops, as I said, they voted on this creed, and they voted on, on the teachings of, of Arius and whether to condemn them or not. And I said there were 318 bishops present at the council. Of the 318 bishops who were present, 316 voted with the Orthodox faith that came from the Apostles, two voted with Arius. So that, in Dan Brown's estimation, is a close vote. <laughs> Dan Brown does not know much about history, and apparently he doesn't know much about math either. <laughs> so it was not at all a close vote. Now, the two who sided with Arius and believed in his teachings were then exiled by Constantine. Now, that's a very important matter, because here we have the first time in history of the church a secular authority inserting himself into affairs of the church and giving a secular punishment, exile, for an ecclesiastical crime of heresy. That's very important. And, and it sets the precedent and the stage for what will happen later on, several centuries into the future, with the medieval inquisitors and the establishment of other official inquisitions in, in certain cities or throughout Christendom. Much later developments, a whole, lot of, a whole other history that goes with that. But it happens here in the very beginning of the, four, or the middle of the 4th century. Now, as we see this time period of conversion of councils, we move from a period of, of active persecution where, where Christians were, were martyred violently for the faith to a period now where the faith is, is legalized, it's tolerated, it's in a certain sense even protected. So how are Christians responding to that? Well, we see here during this period of time the development of what's known as monasticism. 
Christians responding to living a holy life in a unique way, a way that hadn't, they hadn't necessarily been living before. So under the time of persecution, we had red martyrdom, or people dying by you know, shedding their blood for the faith. Now at this period of time, with the legalization of the faith, we have what's known in history as white martyrdom, or monks who, were di who die to themselves in order to live more closely with God. And this especially happens in, in, it develops in, in Egypt and in Palestine and other places, but it's very, very um, in, intense and very, very widespread actually in Egypt. And we have the father of monasticism as a unique individual, a man by the name of St. Anthony the Abbot. And St. Anthony, at the age of 19, gave all his money to the poor and lived an ascetical life in the city of Alexandria in Egypt. Then later on in his life, at the age of 35, he decided to leave the world completely, go into the desert and live in solitude. And he only left the desert twice during his entire life. And the two times he left the desert, once was to go back to the city of Alexandria and to encourage the Christians living in the city during the height of the great persecution. The second time he left the desert, come back into the city of Alexandria, was to support a man we'll learn about in a minute, St. Athanasius, during the Arian crisis. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Now, St. Anthony the Abbot lived a very silent, penitential life. But as I mentioned earlier, I think that holiness attracts. Right? Remember I said how the, why Roman citizens decided to come into the, to the, the Catholic Church and to the Christian faith? It's because they saw the witness of the Christians. Right? Holiness attracts. How we live our life can either be a repellent to people coming into the faith and, and having a relationship with Christ in the church, or we can be a magnet. Right? And so these people, or St. Anthony in particular, was a man who lived the holy life as a magnet. People are attracted to holiness. So even though he went to the desert to live a, a life of solitude, people gathered around him, and they wanted to learn from him. Right? So you can imagine that may be somewhat irritating if you're St. Anthony. You have all these people trying to you know, learn from you, and you're just trying to be out there by yourself. Not really by yourself, you're trying to be out there with God uh, you know, and grow in that relationship. So he did organize you know, kind of a stated times of prayer and song and spiritual conferences occasionally for these people who kind of congregated around him. But they, there wasn't any sort of like real uh, monasticism, cenobitic monasticism that we think of you know, in terms of monks living in a community. That happens a little bit later. Ultimately, St. Anthony will die at the ripe young age of 106. Um, it was all that, uh, you know, locusts and wild honey. It kept him on the straight and narrow with his, his, uh, his health. We know a lot about St. Anthony the Abbot because he his biography was written by St. Athanasius, who we'll talk about in a moment. Now, what's interesting is during this time of monasticism, there were many different forms that kind of grew up. Uh, many different ways in which to try to live a life close to God in solitude or in, in, in different ways. And so we have not only St. Anthony the Abbot living as a hermit out in the desert, but we also had other kind of what we call monastic extremists develop during this time. And some of these monastic extremists were people like this. These were people who were in Palestine, Syria, and Egypt. One group was called the Dendrites, the Dendrites, because they lived in trees. And, and it's, they get from the tree, the Greek um, word is why we call them dendrites, because they lived up in trees. We also had monks known as stylites, or they're also called pillar hermits, people who lived on the top of these pillars or platforms for years, decades. One in particular, remember the most famous one, was uh, a man by the name of St. Simeon the Stylite, who spent 36 years on top of this platform. He would have a little bucket, and he'd lower the bucket down, and people would give him alms and food and things like that. He'd just live up on top of this pillar, you know, trying to get closer to God. There were other monastic extremists, a group by the, by the name of Adamites. And these Adamites were kind of interesting people because they believed that they had regained Adam's original innocence before the fall. Therefore, they were naked and not ashamed, and they went around without any clothes on. 
Now we can see that this form of monasticism grew up in Palestine, in Egypt, in Syria, all places where it's somewhat warm and temperate, and this never developed in places like Germany or in the Baltic states. <laughs> have no recorded history of Adamites living in those places, but we do in Syria and Palestine. Now, so there's all kinds of different ways in which you know, these monks lived, and, and another man who comes onto the scene here who really kind of tries to organize and bring some focus and structure to monasticism is St. Basil the Great. He's known as the father of Eastern monasticism. And there's a few things that, that um, St. Basil does and that are very, very important. He develops a rule kind of as a re, in a reaction, really, against these monastic extremists. And there are, a couple of, there are two main points to his rule that are very important. One is that he decided that there needed to be a period of initiation or novitiate. For, for men who wanted to belong to or you know, to live this, this um, life of monasticism. You had to go through a period of initiation to see if you were really suited for the, for the life. So he develops this concept of the novitiate. He also developed the concept that the, you know, you, monks going out and living in the desert would live in a community, kind of a loose community still at this time, but a community, not just as hermits off by themselves, but, but really focused on some level of community. It would develop even further over time. But at this time, at least he required monks to live in a community, and he restricted the numbers. Only a certain number of men could join a particular community, around 30 or 40 or so. So he didn't want it to be too large so that you would have too many internal problems. And this whole, the whole monastic life developed by, by St. Basil was a one of a spirit of moderation that was a balance between an active life and a, cont a contemplative life. He also organized prayer, which was really kind of a forerunner to the divine office or the liturgy of the hours, a, a way in which throughout the day monks would, would pray, either together or individually. Now, monks, this monasticism would grow because, remember, holiness attracts, and so over time, you have a, a multitude of people becoming monks. And so this is a real growth and flourishing of the faith during this time. When this time period starts in the year 313, there's only a handful of people living this type of Christian lifestyle. But by the end of the 4th century, it's estimated there were tens of thousands of monks living in, in, in some kind of community or as hermits off by themselves. So quite a great flourishing of this, um, of this way of living the Christian life. Now, I mentioned how in the Council of Nicaea, you know, the church addresses the whole heresy of Arianism, definitively. Unfortunately, however, there were many Eastern bishops who were present at the council who didn't like the word that was used to describe the relationship between Jesus and the, as God the Son and God the Father. That word that I mentioned, consubstantial or homoousius in Greek. Many of them didn't like that word. The word was not found in Scripture. There are many other reasons why they didn't like it. But they didn't like it, so there were a few bishops who began a campaign to restore Arius to communion in the church. And one of those in particular was a bishop by the name of Eusebius of Nicomedia. Now Eusebius of Nicomedia was, he signed the Nicene Creed, but he was really an Arian at heart. He really did side with Arius and his teachings. So he began this campaign to restore Arius to communion and to spread his teachings. Now he, what he does is he decides to restore Arius to communion by going through Constantine. And Constantine now inserts himself in the church in a very active way, as we've seen him doing. And one historian has said that it was destiny that whenever Constantine meddled in church affairs, he only made matters worse. And that's really what happens here. So Eusebius goes to Constantine and influences him. And in the year 334, Arius is, is given an invitation to appear before the emperor. He does. He makes a, a confession of faith that's really kind of ambiguous. He doesn't recite the Nicene Creed. He doesn't say he agrees with it. He doesn't, never uses the word consubstantial. But he makes some kind of plea to the emperor to be restored to communion. So the Constantine says, well, that's good enough. And he orders Arius to be restored to his, to his priesthood. And he tells his bishop that you need to restore Arius to the priesthood. His bishop 
happened to be a man by the name of Athanasius. And Athanasius is the bishop of the city of Alexandria. Athanasius refused to restore Arius to communion. And so now we have tension between the emperor and the church. And so now we see Constantine really before trying to serve the church. Now he's really trying to control the church, ordering and directing a bishop to do something that's against the very orthodox teaching that was presented at the Council of Nicaea. And so St. Athanasius uh, of Alexandria comes to our story he uh, actually was present at the Council of Nicaea. He was a deacon. He was assistant to the bishop of, of uh, Alexandria at the time. He attended the council. Upon Bishop Alexander's death, Athanasius is appointed to the see of Alexandria, and he's bishop of that see for 45 years. He spends 20, though, of those 45 years in exile from his see because of his adherence to the Orthodox faith that was presented at Nicaea. He's exiled multiple times by the emperor, Constantine included, and then Constantine's successors. He spends his time in exile in Gaul, in the Holy Land, in Rome, in the deserts in Egypt. And so this man was, was on the move throughout you know, this 20-year period of exile. Now the, the uh, Arians, especially Eusebius of Nicomedia, the kind of head Arian at the time, tries to get rid of Athanasius by pressuring Constantine. And so he's exiled. They also accuse him of murder and sorcery and all kinds of horrible deeds to try to, to turn Constantine against Athanasius. But Athanasius was tenacious and continued in his, uh, that was kind of bad, but still, uh, <laughs> was tenacious in his, in his uh, you know, adherence to the Orthodox faith, the, the apostolic faith, the faith that was presented through the creed in Nicaea, and never, ever, you know, gave in, even despite all this great hardship. And really kind of he alone, in a certain sense, we could say, kept the, the Orthodox faith alive in the East, because many bishops were, were Arian sympathizers or supporters. Most of the people, though, remained faithful to the apostolic faith, again, that was presented at Nicaea. Ultimately, Arius himself dies in the year 336, but Arianism, his teaching, would continue to plague the church for quite some time. Um, the church was actively engaged in the Arian heresy and the Arian crisis for 50 years, actively, but then it really, Arianism would exist and would continue to plague the church for almost 300 years. It was a long period of time the church had to deal with this question, with this heresy. Remember how I said, too, last week that heresies never, you know, the church always addresses a heresy, but it's like that carnival game, whack-a-mole, where you, the church addresses it, but the mole pops up someplace else, and they hit it again. I mean, it just continues to morph itself uh, over time. And so it was really a really difficult, uh, ser serious situation the church was in. St. Jerome would later write in the 5th century about this period of time that the whole world groaned when, to its astonishment, it discovered that it was Arian. You know, so it was just it was a huge, huge crisis in the church. Now, a little bit later, about 100 years later, the church also has to address another heresy that erupts, and this is the heresy that's known as Nestorianism. And this is a heresy really is an attack on the Blessed Virgin Mary and on Christ himself and on who Christ is. Now, Nestorius was a monk from uh, Antioch. He becomes Patriarch of Constantinople in 428. He then preaches on Christmas Day of the year 428 a homily basically saying that Mary is not the mother of God. And this is, what he, this is what he said. They ask whether Mary may be called God-bearer, but has God then a mother? Mary did not bear God. The creature did not bear the creator, but the man, who is the instrument of the Godhead. He who was formed in the womb of Mary was not God himself, but God assumed him. So he's not only attacking Mary as being the mother of God, he's also attacking Jesus and really saying that there's two persons Jesus is two persons. Jesus is a human person, and Jesus is a divine person. And really, in a certain sense, you know, there's, there's these two people or two persons in Christ. Not one person, 
not one divine person who is human and divine, but rather two persons, a human person and a divine person, and that Mary gives birth to the human person, but not the divine person of God. This is Nestorius's teachings. So he said again that Christ was a human person to whom the divine person united. He wrote this, The eternal God cannot be born, suffer, and die. Therefore, Christ's humanity is merely a garment which God puts on, and Mary conceived and bore only that fleshy garment. And so he believed that Mary was Christotokos, or Christ-bearer, one who gave birth to the human flesh of Christ, but that she was not Theotokos, or God-bearer. And so what happens is, St. Cyril, who's Patriarch of Alexandria, condemns Nestorius and his preaching and his teaching, and he sends a letter to all of his monks, and he writes this. He says, I am astonished that the question should ever have been raised as to whether the Holy Virgin should be called Mother of God. For it really amounts to asking, is her son God, or is he not? So St. Cyril really hits the nail on the head. This is what the fundamental problem is, was Nestorius' teaching. He's calling into question again, just like Arius did, whether Jesus is God and whether he really is divine. So how all this is settled is at the Council of Nicaea. The emperor at the time, Theodosius II, convokes the council to meet in the city of Ephesus. The pope approves the calling of this council. St. Cyril of Alexandria, the one who condemned Nestorius' teachings in his letter to the monks, is appointed as papal legate. And at this council, the council fathers declare that Mary is the mother of God. She is Theotokos. That there is one divine person. Jesus is one divine person. Not two persons, but one divine person. And that, therefore, Nestorius was condemned, deposed, and excommunicated. Now, also during this period of time, we have to talk about one particular individual who's very, very important in the history of the church. And it's important for us to discuss it because we're meeting in a parish named after him. And he is St. Leo the Great, Pope St. Leo the Great. Now, Pope St. Leo is known as the Great. He's the first pope to be given the title the Great in the history of the church for two main reasons. He's considered the Great because, one, he was very instrumental in defeating another heresy that arose in the, during the church's uh, history during this time, a heresy known as monophysitism. And monophysitism is this belief that there was only one nature in Christ. That Christ was a divine, he only had a divine nature. He did not have a human nature. And this heresy was, was propagated by a monk uh, by the name of Eutyches. And Eutyches, again, he denied that there were two natures of Christ. He believed that the human nature of Christ was absorbed by the divine. So Jesus only had one nature, a divine nature. So again, if you believe that, then you're saying that Jesus wasn't truly human. Right? But that's been our understanding and our teaching in the faith that's presented to us from the apostles that Jesus is true God, true man. So again, another attack on who Jesus is. So Pope Leo hears about Eutyches' teachings, and he writes a book. He writes a book that's, called, that's known as St. Leo's Tome. He writes his book, and he writes it to the Patriarch of Constantinople, a man at this time whose name is Flavian to address this theological controversy. Flavian then reads Leo's book and excommunicates Eutyches. Now, Eutyches appeals to the emperor, Theodosius II, for a council. and says, call a council to settle this question. The pope says he doesn't agree with my teaching. I, you know, this is my teaching. People are accepting it. The, page, you know, the Patriarch of Constantinople doesn't accept it, but I appeal now to you, the emperor, to step in here and solve this question. So Theodosius II calls a council that meets in the year 449, at Ephesus, and in this council, a papal representative was present to read St. Leo's tome, to read this book, and to read the teachings on this issue, and he was not allowed to read the book, because Eutyches objected. Basically, this council was stacked in favor of Eutyches. 
that the, whole, the council fathers present were bishops who agreed with Eutyches' teachings. The emperor also sided with Eutyches, and so the papal teaching was not allowed to be presented. Ultimately, this council then acquitted Eutyches of heresy and reinstated him, and then actually deposed St. Flavian, the patriarch of Constantinople. So this council comes, it's a small seat council, it's not recognized as an ecumenical council, comes to be known in history as the robber council because it robbed, really, the church of the truth. It was a false council. It was a council that adopted a meeting of bishops that adopted a heresy, not authentic teachings. So ultimately, how this whole uh, monophysite trouble is, is addressed, or how it's brought to a conclusion, is by the death of the emperor. Theodosius II dies, a new emperor comes to the throne, and he is more favorable towards this teaching that comes from St. Leo, and this orthodox understanding that Jesus has two natures a human nature, and a divine nature, with one person, a divine person. So he, this new emperor, calls a council that meets, the Council of Chalcedon, that meets in the year 451 AD. St. Leo's book is read. The council fathers assembled. They hear this, the readings uh, from this book, and they all shout out in acclamation, that is the faith of the fathers, that is the faith of the apostles, so we all believe Peter has spoken through Leo. So here again, we have the Pope inserting himself into this, this, this matter and this issue, this heretical teaching, and he once again presents the apostolic and orthodox faith for the church. The Council Fathers would then write in a document the teaching of the faith in this matter. They write this, We all with one voice confess our Lord Jesus Christ, one and the same Son, the same perfect in Godhead, the same perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way abolished because of the union, but rather the characteristic property of each nature being preserved and concurring into one person and one subsistence. Way to boil this down in theology is it's known as the hypostatic union, that there is one, that Christ is one divine person who has two natures, a human and divine nature. Right? But that, that human and divine nature exists in this perfect union under the one divine person of Christ. Right, so, this is, so our theology is, is, again, developed here in terms of being able to be expressed authentically so the church now has words with which to address this question that keeps coming up, who is Jesus? Now, another reason why St. Leo is considered the great is because of an action he performed to defend the city of Rome. And what happens here at this time, in the early part of the 400s, there's a group of people known as the Huns, and the Huns begin to march from the Mongolian steppe all the way to Italy, which is 6,000 miles. And they begin to, they're so fierce, they begin to actually push the barbarians in, in their path, the Goths, into the Roman Empire. And it causes all kinds of, of huge uh, problems politically and militarily for the empire. Now, the Huns were a fierce people, a fierce and, and wild people. They ate raw, half raw meat what, that they warmed under their saddles. So they were horsemen. And they subsisted on this meat. They would take meat that they would you know, hunt and get from animals, and they'd warm it by putting it underneath their saddles as they rode. And they'd pick it out and eat it. So they were, you know, they were used to kind of food on the go, food on the run. Um, <laughs> they even were known to sleep in their saddle. I mean, these were, these were great horsemen. They would sleep in their, in their saddles. They also shot arrows with great rapidity. I mean, they were just wonderful warriors, and very fierce, fierce warriors. Now, the leader at the, of the Huns at the time was a man by the name of Attila. And Attila was a highly intelligent individual, despite, you know, most of us have this understanding of the Huns as these bloodthirsty, um, you know, hairy people that ate, you know, half raw meat underneath the saddle, but, and that they were somehow not, you know, smart, but that's not really the, the true historical image, uh, at least of Attila. Attila was a very, very brilliant man. 
He actually knew Latin, spoke Latin, because he lived in Rome as a hostage for a period of time in his early youth. So he knew the city, he knew Roman society, he knew the culture, he knew the language. He was known by the, by the Romans as the scourge of God, because wherever, wherever he went, the Huns just, you know, just brought death and destruction and devastation. In the year 452, he invades the Italian mainland and is outside, he and his army are outside the gates of Rome, just they're ready to go in and sack it. Rome was practically defenseless. But what happens is Pope St. Leo is, is uh, the Bishop of Rome. He, goes, he decides to march out with a small retinue, unarmed, to meet with Attila. He meets with Attila and convinces him to not destroy the city. And Attila and his men pick up their camp, turn around, and walk away. It's a miraculous intervention on the part of St. Leo. I mean, here we have the Pope as the ultimate peacemaker, one going and, and, and confronting this, this violent tribe, this violent nomadic tribe bent on destruction, and turning them away. It was amazing. Now, a couple years later, about three years later, in 455, another group of, of barbarians are outside the gates of Rome, and this is the tribe known as the Vandals. And their leader, a man by the name of Genesaric, uh, who actually was an Arian, he and his army kind of, uh, they come out beside the city of Rome, or outside the city of Rome, and they want to destroy the city. Leo, once again, marches out to meet with the Vandals, meet with Genesaric, talks with them. He convinces to have uh, Genesaric not destroy the city, but only loot the city. So it was only kind of a half victory at this point. Um, you know, he, can, he convinces them to come in and just take property, but not destroy or kill the people, not to destroy the city. And that's what happens. Genesaric and his vandals come into the city. They vandalize the city of Rome and take away... Uh, they, take, they take a lot of things out of the city of Rome, including the seven-branch candlestick, the great menorah, that the, that the general Titus, the Roman general Titus, had taken from the temple uh, in the year 70 A.D., so the great menorah, the great candlestick that had been in the temple was brought from Jerusalem to Rome after the destruction of the city, and then the vandals take it here in the 5th century and it disappears forever and no one knows where it is. So that would be a great script actually for like Indiana Jones. Wouldn't it? Like Indiana Jones and the Lost Menorah. <laughs> Anybody a screenwriter, that's a great story to, to, to do, to try to find that. So we come to the conclusion at the end of our time period here of conversion to councils. And I just want to talk about, remember I said at the beginning that there were two conversions. The conversion to the empire and another conversion that was very important in the history of the church, the conversion of the Franks. And what happens is, is that in the end of the 5th century, in the year 476, the Western Roman Empire collapses. Central authority from Rome basically collapses. And how that happens is a German chieftain by the name of Odo Acker comes into the city of Rome, and he deposes the last Roman emperor in the West. The last Roman emperor in the West, a man by the name of Romulus Augustulus, actually not really a man, he was a 16-year-old boy. So uh, Odo Acker comes in, overthrows the empire in the West, and establishes himself as king of the Romans. So in the West, the Western central authority in Rome collapses. So what happens then in the Western part of the empire is that authority then devolves down to the local areas. Right, to local provinces. And many of those who were in charge of local provinces, were some of them were German chieftains who were ethnically German but really Roman. They were Roman auxiliary troops. And also in places, you only, the only person left who was, had any kind of authority or any kind of organization or structure was a Catholic bishop. And so in the West, what you'll see is the church becoming more and more involved, and we'll talk about this a little bit next week, more and more involved in politics because it's the only organized, stable political institution left in the Western part of the empire. Now, in the eastern half of the Roman Empire, that empire will continue in existence and will be much engaged in affairs of the West, actually, for many, many centuries. And that empire will not fall until the 15th century.
1453 when the Ottoman Turks will come into the city of Constantinople and conquer it and rename it Istanbul, right? So again, so this is what happens in the West. So now you have in the West this, 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 this collapsing of central authority. Many of it has fallen onto the church, but there are these German chieftains who are around. And what happens with one of them is there's this tribe known as the Franks. Now the Franks were kind of unique among the German tribes because they had not yet embraced the Catholic faith. They had also not, like many other German tribes around them, embraced the Aryan faith, so to speak. What happens is many, during this whole Aryan crisis, many bishops in the East who were Aryan sent missionaries, Aryan missionaries, to the West to convert many of these Germanic tribes. And so many tribes in the West at this point are Aryan. Some are still pagan, and some are in small amount are actually Catholic. So what happens at this time in the latter part of the 5th century is Clovis is the king of the Franks. He marries a Burgundian princess who was Catholic by the name of St. Clotilda. Now, does anybody know St. Clotilda? Anybody heard the story of St. This is a fabulous woman, one of, the, one of the probably the greatest women in the history of the church, and there's practically no personal devotions to St. Clotilda. There are hardly any parishes in the world named after St. Clotilda, and it's really a travesty of Catholic justice, to be honest, because this woman really greatly influenced the entire history of Western civilization. And how she did it was she was Catholic, she was married to Clovis, king of the Franks, and she you know, continued to pray for him and encourage him to embrace her faith. He always rebuffed her. You know, she, he, she did actually allow him, or she did convince him to allow that their firstborn son was to be, would, would, she allowed him to have that child baptized in the Catholic faith. So the child was baptized in the Catholic faith. Unfortunately, the child died soon after the baptism, and Clovis then blamed his death on the, this Catholic God, this Christian God. But Clotilda, St. Clotilda, continued like a good wife to support her husband, pray for her husband, lead with you know, her own life, a life of faith, and you know, not, didn't nag him to convert, that kind of thing, you know, and was a very, very good, holy woman, led by example in her life, and continued to pray for him. So much so that there was a point in time when Clovis was in a great battle with another German tribe, and it looked like he was going to lose this battle, uh, and that he and his warriors would be wiped out. And in a moment of just extreme need, he calls out and cries out to St. Clotilda's God, saying, Jesus Christ, thou who art according to Clotilda, the son of the living God, help me in my distress. If thou dost give me victory, I will believe in thee, and I will be baptized. And miraculously enough, Clovis and his Franks won their battle. He then followed through with his, his, his promise to God, and then embraced the Catholic faith and was baptized with 3,000 of his warriors. And so the Franks become a Catholic tribe. And why that's important is because the Franks will then grow, go and grow into becoming the predominant Germanic tribe on the continent. And they'll become to, to you know, encompass what's known as the modern-day nation-state of France. Right? And there'll be this extreme and really um, direct and intense relationship between France and the Franks and the Pope and the Church. And we'll see that develop even more fully next week when we talk about the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor Charlemagne. And so now this is why France, you might have heard this, but France is known as the eldest daughter of the church. Because back in the year 496, Clovis and his warriors come into the faith. Now, we all know that many things have happened in France in the modern world, and France might not really be considered the eldest daughter of the church anymore. We would probably use another term to describe France today, um, <laughs> which might not be so kind. But, but we can at least pray to St. Clotilda 
for the conversion of, of France. And France has gone through a terrible, terrible time, especially in the last couple hundred years, with the French Revolution and the Enlightenment and what have you. And, and so it's a country in need of intercession, a country in need of, of desperate prayers, and all of Western Europe is, but in particular France. And so we need to turn to St. Clotilde and ask her to pray for the conversion, reversion, really, of the French people. Um, and we hope that that does come about. And so next week, we'll meet again in our final time, and we'll finish out these thousand years with a look at the missionaries and the Holy Roman Emperor Charlemagne. So thank you again for your time tonight. Thank you, Steve, for another excellent uh, talk. Don't forget that Steve's got some of his programs on, uh, on uh, is it CD and DVD or just both back there? So um, make sure you take a look at that. We're going to take a, about a three, four, or five-minute break. Those that need to leave can leave. Those that want to stay around for a short question and answer, uh, feel free to do so. All right, we're just going to do a quick, as we usually do, five minutes. We're running a little late tonight and uh, answer some questions. And then if you've got anything left over at the end, I'm sure yeah, Steve will be around for a few minutes yeah. to, uh, to field them. So. Um, where does St. Helena come in all this? Because she's the one that found the true cross, and she was right. the mother of Constantine? Yes, 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 exactly. Yeah, so yeah, St. Helena comes into the picture at this particular time, and you're exactly right, and mother of Constantine, she converts to the faith, and uh, you know, most famous and most well-known for going over to the Holy Land and finding the true cross and, and helping to build the Basilica of the Holy Sepulchre. And, yep. mm-hmm. I didn't mention her for, for time, but no, another very important woman in the history of the church. Hi, I was uh, wondering if there was any connection, perhaps, with the rise of Islam a couple hundred years later and their misconception of the true events uh, with the heresies that were going on 200 years before that and uh, what the connection is there. Yeah, no, that's a good question. That's a question, actually, I'll probably address next week because we'll we'll talk about Islam. That's in the time period we'll talk about. But but you're exactly right. I mean, Muhammad, um, you know, at the time that he lived in the 7th century, he knew... Uh, some things about Judaism, he knew some things about the Christian faith, but what he knew of the Christian faith were, was definitely, um, you know, from heresies. So, I mean, his, uh, definitely an historian her- heresy that we talked about tonight was, was prevalent and known in Arabia. Um, Arian, probably a little bit of Arianism was there as well. So, yeah, I mean, what, what he understood to be the Christian faith was very much a perversion of the faith uh, through these heresies. I get a little confused when you're talking about the Cesaro Papism. Yes. Um, it's, you said it was primarily in the east. Yeah, well, yeah. But it wasn't it the same emperor in both east and the west at that point, or right? I don't understand how. Yeah, that yeah, worked. no, that's a good question. I mean, quick clarification. Yeah, I mean, Caesar Papism was, you know, this understanding that the emperor becomes very involved in church affairs, and you know, at the time of Constantine, he said, you know, he's a sole ruler of both east and west. But what happens over time is that when Constantine, as I mentioned, moves the capital from Rome, the imperial court from Rome to Byzantium, renamed Constantinople, then the political power shifts to the eastern part, right? And so, yeah, he's still emperor of Rome. Uh, He's emperor of east and west halves. But politics and the structure of societies begin to develop and change in those east and west halves differently. And so, you know, obviously the emperor is way off in Constantinople. I mean, what happens in Rome... I mean, he knows about, he can influence to a certain extent, but over time, his influence there will greatly decrease. And what will ultimately happen is, as I mentioned at the end of our time tonight, is at the end of the 5th century, that Western, you know, Western centralized government in Rome collapses in 476. And so you have really, I mean, the emperor having no practical political authority in Rome in the Western half of the empire 
from that period on. I mean, you know, they, they'll, they'll come back under Justin and Justinian and try to re recapture parts of Italy and whatnot and reconstitute the Western Empire. But for the most part, the Western half of the empire develops in a completely politically different manner than the East. And only politically, but also ecclesially as well. And that, that causes a lot of problems and tensions, which unfortunately still exist in the church today. So. Final question. If uh, so many of the bishops voted that uh, Jesus was God, yep. then how did this Arianism uh, happen, I guess? Right. How did it spread? No, good question. I mean, the... You know, only two bishops voted with Arius, as I said, and, and the vast majority voted with the with the creed. But there were many. There was a block of bishops, including Eusebius of Nicomedia, which I mentioned, who weren't happy with the word that was chosen, with consubstantial or with homoousius. They weren't happy with that word uh, to describe the relationship between Jesus and and the Father. So they you know, agreed with the creed and they signed the creed. Um, you know, I mean, many we could probably argue and say that for you know one reason for why they did that would be for their you know political expediency. I mean, they, they knew which way things were going. You know, they knew where the majority of people were headed. They knew where Constantine. They, he wanted unity, and they didn't want to necessarily stick out. Um, so, in a certain sense, they could disagree with it and bide their time until the time was a little more ripe for them to you know try to influence things differently. Um, is one you know possible explanation. Um, it could have just had a change of heart later, you know, maybe re reflecting on it more and more. Maybe they agreed with Arius's teachings. And so, I mean, Arius's teachings were, as I mentioned, were very widespread and, and accepted, you know, um, before the council. So there were bishops who went to the council who were Arian sympathizers. Um, but, you know, I mean, human nature being what it is, even people in positions of authority, they try to, you know, figure out where things are going to fall, and they decide one way or the other. And so they cited that way, and then after the council was over, then they were able to gather their forces and to try to reinstate Arius and, and to get rid of all the other Orthodox Nicene bishops, which is what happens over time. As you'll see in different sees, you'll see the, those bishops who, who agreed with the Orthodox faith and agreed with Nicaea are replaced by other bishops. And Eusebius of Nicomedia was extremely um, influential because he had the ear of Constantine. And so he had the ear of the emperor, and he was able to sway the emperor to his... And he's, he was a shrewd politician, despite being a bishop. Or almost because of being a bishop. Who knows? You, we could say that. I didn't say that, but uh, stop the tape now. But, yeah. Thank, thank you, Steve. Very, very right, good. Thank you. thank you. Thank you all. My daughter just told me it's time to go to bed, so we got to go home. So Christ is risen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.